Amen. Well, thanks, Susan. Wow, I'm a little intimidated by that, but uh, pumped up and excited too. I know we talk a lot about uh, the rise of social media and you know just how much we see and get and access through our smartphones, and I'm going to talk about that again uh, in the sense that uh, I'm sure you all have smartphones or some sort of social media, and you've all seen uh, this new rise in these graphics graphic affirmations. Uh, these, you know, graphics that are beautifully done. Uh, a lot of times there's hand lettering involved, just these affirmations, and they're supposed to lift us up, encourage us, and motivate us. And I was reading, actually, about the rise of the use of these affirmations, these graphic affirmations, and I discovered that there's a way to write these affirmations. Uh, they have to be in the present tense. They can't be in the past or they can't be in the future. They say that your brain doesn't engage with them right unless they're in the present. Uh, they also have to be positive and you have to repeat them to yourself over and over and over again throughout the day. And if you do this, you will become what you say. So there's all sorts of even apps for smartphones now. You can go in the app store and just type in affirmations and see all sorts of apps where they will, you know, flood you with images of these, again, these present tense positive statements. And as you repeat these continually, you will unlock the door to success in your life. Uh, one website says that with positive affirmations, you are guaranteed to manifest more money. You're also guaranteed to attract romance. You're guaranteed to create positive relationships and you're guaranteed to lose weight and exercise more. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, some of these apps track the most favorite, the most looked at affirmations, and among the top are, I accept myself and know that I am worthy of great things in life. Uh, I deserve to be happy and loved. And I can accomplish anything I've set my mind to. You've seen that, right? You've seen that written or printed somewhere on you know, social media or a smartphone. I can accomplish anything I set my mind to. Well, the problem is these statements aren't true, right? Uh, you can't accomplish anything you set your mind to. I could set my mind to becoming an NBA basketball player. And it doesn't matter how many times I repeat that to myself. I will never be an NBA basketball player, or an Olympic gymnast, or an opera singer, right? I actually had a failed experiment with this when I was in the second grade. Uh, my, my favorite teacher was Miss Kawaguchi, and I loved her so much that I wanted to be just like her when I grew up. So I told everyone, my family, my friends, that when I grew up, I was going to be a Japanese movie star. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. But you know, I mean, I, no matter how many times I repeated that through my life, I guarantee you I would not be a Japanese movie star today for obvious reasons, right? So these affirmations might seem silly to us. Uh, again, it's kind of just wrong uh, trying to take these statements and turn them into some magic formulas by repeating them over and over again in hopes of getting what we want. I mean, the whole thing is just not biblical, right? But uh, on the other hand, uh, when we look at the scripture, we need to remember that the scripture does reveal truth about affirmations. And we will see that God not only allows, but actually expects his people to be affirming. 
And we'll see that as we explore our text this morning. Uh, we're opening a brand new book today, Second Thessalonians. So we're going to explore the first four verses. We're just going to read verse one and two, basically, uh, look at a tiny bit of background, and then launch into verses three and four, focusing on those. So let's open it up to Second Thessalonians 1, 1 through 4, which begins with Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So remember, uh, with this whole church at Thessalonica, we saw when we began the study back in September uh, that Paul went to this city, this uh, Greco-Roman, this Roman city of uh, Thessalonica, and he established a church there. Uh, the text tells us that in Acts 17 that he went into the local synagogue there as he and his pattern were to go to the Jew first and then the Greek. He went to the local synagogue and he began to preach to the Jews there that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one who came for them for their sins to make a way for them to be right with God. That he was crucified that he died, he rose again, and that he was coming back. And some people listened. Uh, some of the Jews listened and they believed. And some uh, Gentiles, some non-Jews listened and believed as well. And the text tells us that the Jews became very jealous. Uh, they were angry that people were listening to Paul and the gospel message that he was preaching. And they became enraged. And he was staying in the house of a man named Jason and they just rushed Jason's home looking for him. Trying to you know, bring Jason before the governors of the land, trying to cause so much problem, many problems for Paul and all those who believed in the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, so the believers there got Paul out of the city quickly and he went on, uh, Acts 17 says, to Berea. And when he got to Berea, he began to do the same thing. Went into the synagogue, preached Christ, and the Jews in Thessalonica heard that he was in Berea and they were so uptight and so angry that they chased him all the way down there and did the same thing. They ran him out of town again. And the believers got him on a ship. He went to Athens and finally he landed in Corinth where he spent a year and a half in Corinth. But you know, uh, those people that were left there, they were left in a very hostile environment. Uh, Paul had his companions with him, uh, Silvanus or Silas and Timothy. Uh, they were with him in Thessalonica. They were with him in Berea. Uh, they were split off from him for a while and then they came and rejoined with him in Corinth. And Paul said to you know Silas and Timothy, I wonder how that church in Thessalonica is doing. I mean, the people there were so hostile to the gospel. And we were only there for a short amount of time. I mean, I wonder how they're holding up. And so he sent Timothy to find out, you know, did their faith remain? Did their faith remain despite that hostility, despite the hatred that they were receiving from the community? And Timothy came back and said, you know what? Not only did their faith remain, but they're doing really well. And Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians in response. In response to this great news from Timothy that not only were they you know, still Christian, but they were thriving spiritually. And you know, people would come back and forth between Corinth and Thessalonica. It was about 200 miles between the two. Timothy went back and forth and others went back and forth. And Paul ended up hearing that there was a letter that went to the Thessalonians. And it was a letter that was forged in his name. And it told the people there that they had missed the rapture. 
This forged letter told these Thessalonians that they had missed the rapture and they believed it because they knew that after the rapture would come the tribulation period and they were going some, through some really hard times. I mean, things didn't get easier for them. In fact, they got harder. And so they thought, oh my goodness, we missed the rapture and we're in the, the tribulation period now. Uh, we see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says to them, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. Remember, they had been taught in 1 Thessalonians that they were going to meet the Lord together in the clouds in the air. Uh, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul saying that letter was not from us. It's not true. You didn't miss the rapture and you're not in the tribulation period. What a relief to them, right? So Paul wrote this letter, 2 Thessalonians, right away in response to that news that he heard. And scholars say there were probably only a couple of months between the first letter, 1 Thessalonians, and the second letter, 2 Thessalonians. And it begins in the style of a typical Greco-Roman letter. It begins with the author of the letter, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, and then who the addressee is, who it's to, to the church at Thessalonica. And then it describes who they are. They are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it gives them a greeting and the greeting is grace to you and peace. And then the source of that grace and peace is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we transition into the text that we wanna unpack, uh, verses three and four here. And Paul says again in verse three, we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Now, scholars would say that the controlling theme of this verse is actually the word there, Ophelo, which is translated ought. We ought. Uh, this word is translated in multiple places in the New Testament, and it's not always translated as ought. Uh, for example, in Matthew 18, Matthew 18, verses 28, verse 30, and verse 34, Matthew 18 is the parable of the unforgiving servant this servant that was brought before a king, and he was released of all of the debt, this ginormous debt he owed this king because he pleaded for mercy. And then the parable tells us that he went out and found another servant and began to choke him because that servant owed him money. Uh, Matthew 18, 28 says, when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii owed him. That's the same Greek word for ought here, ophelo. It means owed, we ought, we owe. Also in verse 30, it says, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. You know what word there is ophelo? It's debt, the word translated as debt. And then again in verse 34, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Same Greek word, ophelo. So ought, it means you owe, you have a debt to do this. Uh, it's also translated differently in Romans 15.1. Romans 15.1 says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. A same Greek word is translated as obligation. So we owe it, we have a debt, we have an obligation. And then we see it translated as ought in places like 1 John 3.16 and 1 John 4.11. And as we read those, we can see kind of the weight of this. 1 John 3.16 says, by this we know love 
that he laid down his life for us. And we ought, we owe it, we have a debt, we have an obligation to lay down our lives for the brothers. First John 4, 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We owe it to love one another. We have a debt, we have an obligation to love one another. And then he heightens it uh, back in 2 Thessalonians 1.3 by adding right after that, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. He adds, this is the right thing to do. It's worthy, it's deserving, this is what is due. So why did they owe God thanks? Why were they in debt to give God thanks? Why were they obligated to give God thanks? Why was it right that they give God thanks? For the work that he was doing in the believers at Thessalonica. It says because in the text, 2 Thessalonians 1.3, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another, it's increasing. And Paul uses some big words here in the Greek text, this uh, growing faith. It's like a super growing faith. He takes this normal growing word, oxano, and he adds a hyper or hooper to the front. And Paul was always making these words into even bigger words by doing things like that. Like your faith is super growing. And then he says that your love is also growing. So Paul pointing out this great work that God was doing in them, that God was doing in these believers. So our first point is like Paul, we need to look for God's work in others. We need to look for God's work in others. We need to actively be on the lookout to see God's work in others. This is our duty. This is what we ought to do. This is what we owe it to do. We're in debt to do. We're obligated to do it. It is the right thing to do, to look for God's work in others and to give thanks to God for his work in others. Uh, when God works in a human soul, we need to give him thanks. We ought, the text says, always to do this. Not just once, not every now and then, but we're to always be doing this. Looking for God's work in others and giving him thanks. We know that Genesis 1.27 says that human beings have been created in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. And when we fail to recognize his work in others, we fail to give him the glory that he deserves, the honor that he deserves. Uh, if you wanna look at Romans 1, 18 through 21, Romans 1, 18 through 21, or you can jot it down and read it later, but this is probably a familiar passage to us, just kind of explaining why God's wrath is being poured out on mankind, why God is frustrated or angry with mankind. It says in verse 18 of Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. They push down the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Uh, the author saying, Paul saying, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. We can see, we can see his work and what he's done ever since the creation in the world in the things that have been made. The things that have been made. And that includes people people who have been made in his image and that he works in and through. So they are without excuse. We can't suppress the truth when we see God's work in people and through people. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
you see this rebuke against people who see God's work clearly and yet suppress that truth and don't honor him or give thanks to him as a result. And so failing to give God the honor that he's due through the things that he's made is wrong. And we think about that when we think of creation, but we often forget it applies to people too. I mean, when we go out in creation and we see things like beautiful, majestic mountains, or we see an amazing sunset, or we see the vastness of the ocean, or we look at night and we see the incredible stars in the heavens, uh, we're prompted to give honor and glory to God, and rightfully so. And if you've ever been around somebody, maybe there's an amazing sunset going on or just a beautiful display of God as our creator and you're just in awe, marveling at it and they don't care. They're standing next to you and they're just like, come on, let's go. You know, looking at their cell phone, scrolling through their feed or whatever, they don't care about what's going on. You feel like, oh, this is wrong. I mean, we should be giving honor and thanks to God. But in the same sense, we can't be like them in being blind to what God's doing through people. It's not just nature, but it's through people as well. And when we're blind to that, when we don't honor God for his work in people and give thanks to him for his work in people, that's wrong too. And so we must be looking, we must be on the watch for the work that God does through others instead of, in a sense, always staring at our own phone, always looking at our own feeds and missing what God's doing in the people around us. So Paul not only here gives thanks to God, but he also affirms these believers. He affirms the Thessalonians for the work that God has done in them. Uh, It says again in verse three, and then we'll look at verse four as well. He says, your faith is growing abundantly. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. In verse four, he says, your steadfastness in faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. So Paul gets very detailed here. And he goes on to point out specific things that God has done in these people and in their lives. So that's the second point for us, is point out specific successes. That's what Paul did. He pointed out specific successes. And we need to do the same thing. We need to affirm God's work in others. And to affirm in this sense means to make an honest declaration about the specific work that God is doing in others. It's to make an honest declaration, an honest statement about the specific work that God is doing in others. Uh, We know the Bible tells us that we're to respect God. We're also to respect others. And when we respect others, we're respecting God. The Bible tells us that we're to honor God. The Bible also tells us that we're to honor others. And when we honor others, we're honoring God. The Bible tells us that we're to love God and we're to love others. And when we love others, we're loving God. And here, when we affirm God's work in others, we're affirming God. We're giving him the honor, the respect that he is due. It's like uh, if there was a, a chili cook-off, and I use that example of a chili cook-off because I know Pastor Mike will refer to the chili cook-off often, but uh, this is a little different. Uh, the chili cook-off, the chili gets judged, right? I mean, there's a, a contest, and they're gonna figure out which chili is the best chili, and so the chili gets judged. Uh, people are looking at the chili, and ultimately one chili gets the, the grand prize, the blue ribbon, so to speak. But is it really the chili that gets the prize or the ribbon? Uh, does the chili walk home with the ribbon at the end of the day? No, right? It's the cook. The cook is the one who gets the ribbon or gets the prize. And it's the same thing here. Uh, when we commend God's work in others, we're really commending God. 
Uh, We're giving him the thanks that he is due and the honor that he is due. And we see Jesus commending the work of God in other people. Uh, We're all hoping and longing for that day that we see in Matthew 25, 21, and Matthew 25, 23 as well, when Jesus in a parable is talking about the master saying to the servant, and he says to him, well done, good and faithful servant. So Jesus commending there that good and faithful servant, well done, good job. God has made you good and he has made you faithful. He has worked through you. And we see this kind of commending all throughout the Bible. Uh, this affirming of God's work in people. I know just yesterday in DBR, I stumbled across uh, Numbers 14.24 where it was talking about Caleb. And Caleb was one of the people who believed God. He trusted in God. And the text says in Numbers 14.24 that Caleb had a different spirit, God said. He wasn't like all of those who didn't believe. He was one who would fully obey the Lord. I mean, they're even being affirmed or commended for the work that God had done through him. Again, we can find it everywhere in the scriptures. One of our favorite passages as women is Proverbs 31.30. Proverbs 31.30, we probably all know it. It's charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised, right? She's to be praised. She's to be affirmed. She's to be commended because of God's work in her, because she fears the Lord. And this is a little different than being an encourager. Uh, An encourager is kind of more like a cheerleader that looks towards the future and says, you got this, you can do this, go, 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 you can, you know, be successful. Uh, This is the one who affirms by looking back in a sense and pointing to what God has already done or what God is doing, saying, I see God's work in you. And because of that, I'm confident in you. I trust you. I know that you can do this because of what God has already done in you. And you might have to think to yourself at this point, How often do I affirm other people? Am I one who's continually affirming, pointing out what God has done and is doing in them? Because remember, uh, the text says we ought to do this, we owe it to do this, we are obligated to do this always. It's something that we should be doing continually. It is the right thing for us to do. And if we're on the lookout for it and ready to point out specific successes, it's not as hard as it might seem. I had a conversation last week with a friend that I hadn't talked to in a long time, and she's going through some very difficult circumstances. And even though I haven't talked to her in a long time, I knew that in the past she had some real difficulties in her marriage. So I was able to affirm her You know, thank you for staying faithful to your marriage. Even though it was difficult, even though there were hard times, you stayed faithful. You modeled out the commitment of Christ to us by staying faithful in your marriage. And I appreciate that. And I see Christ in that. Anytime we see God doing something good through someone, we can and we should affirm that. Uh, James 1.17, a familiar passage. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, right? Coming down from the Father of light. So if we see anything good or anything perfect, it's ultimately from, from God, right? It's the work of God. When we see the fruit of the Spirit in somebody's life, when we see them exhibiting love, joy, patience, kindness, peace, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We can affirm that in them. We can say, you know, I see the love of Christ in you as I saw you or watched you put that other person before yourself. 
we can say, you know, I see the goodness of Christ in you. I see the goodness of Christ in you as you made that decision to stand up for what was right. I see the self-control, godly self-control worked out in your life as you chose to say no to that dark practice and yes to this good thing. We can commend these things and we should, we ought to. It's our obligation because we need to honor God for the work that he's doing in others. And we have to remember in doing this that we commend the things that God would commend. We commend what God would commend, and we know that God is focused usually on the internal rather than the external. Uh, we see that, for example, in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, where we see that contrast between the external and the internal, or sorry, 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4, it says, don't let your adorning be external. Really, the text is merely external braiding hair, gold jewelry, clothing you wear, but in contrast, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So if we were going to affirm in a sense, it wouldn't be looking at a young girl and saying, you know, you have such a beautiful smile, but it would be, you know, I see the joy of the Lord in you. You're manifesting continually the joy of the Lord. You're always smiling. And again, we have to ask ourselves, what is typically coming from our own mouths? Is it affirmation? Or is it typically criticism and correction? If it's typically affirmation, then the periodic correction that we need to bring people will be more easily and more readily received. But if we're constantly the one who's always bringing that correction and criticism, it's hard for people to receive it from us. At the same time, we should never use affirmation so that we can get to the correction and the criticism. You know, and we, we do that, people do that. You know, I, I love the way that you show up on time, but you know, I don't like the way that you, know, you always do this. It's like, okay, what are you doing here, right? Uh, there's a book called Practicing Affirmation by Sam Crabtree, and it's at Compass Books. And um, there's an example in there of a boss of a company. And this boss used this technique uh, where he would correct his employees by saying like, again, I, I love the way that you are faithful to the job but the quality of your work is not that good. But I love the way you're faithful to the job. And he thought he was just this master of correcting people by using affirmation. And he would even boast about his technique, he called it the sandwich technique. The affirmation, the correction, and then the affirmation. But uh, the book points out that many people who work there begin to catch on, right? And they would say to each other, did you get the sandwich? <laughs> you know, <laughs> the affirmation, the correction, and then the affirmation. And it began to be get known as the baloney sandwich. <laughs> you know, just throwing out the affirmations to get to the correction. If you need to correct somebody, and we do, let's just correct them, you know? Let's just say, hey, I needed to talk to you about this, or I wanted to bring this to your attention. But we don't have to couch it in affirmations because then we're losing the beauty of our affirmations and we're throwing them out, we're using them to manipulate and get that criticism or correction in there. Biblical affirmation is also not the same as flattery. Uh, with flattery, you're making a statement in order to get something from somebody. You want something in return. Uh, this is honest, truthful, talk, truthful statements that point to God's work in somebody, God-centered truth. And again, there's no motive of payback here. And when you see this in action, it's refreshing. It's fun. It's exciting to see. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I went for my first colonoscopy. And yeah, I was not excited about that. 
I was nervous, and my youngest daughter decided to go with me, and we went really early in the morning. And when we got there, there was another woman in there waiting for her colonoscopy, and she could tell I was a little nervous, and I let her know it was my first one. And she let me know that she had had many colonoscopies. In fact, she went in every single year because she said whenever she went in, they would discover 40 to 50 polyps and just take them all out at once and say, come back in a year and let's repeat the process. So, you know, she was letting me know it wasn't as bad as I thought and it would be a quick thing and she's in every year. And her husband had come with her. And uh, suddenly as we were talking, she let me and everybody in that office know that, you know, this is a great man. She said, my husband is a great man. And you could see him kind of start to smirk and try to hold it back. And she said, he comes with me every time he gets up with me. He works hard. Uh, he is a good man and I am blessed to be his wife. And, you know, just listening to her, you could see again, her husband was encouraged and my daughter was sitting there just enamored with this woman. Like, wow, this woman is so cool. Like, kind of like, mom, why can't you be more like her? You know? I mean, but it was, it was just refreshing to be around somebody like that who was being affirming and pointing out, you know, just godly traits in people. It was charming. And you might ask, well, do we affirm then only believers? Can you affirm a non-believer? Sure, we can affirm a non-believer. Uh, you can affirm a child. You can say, you know, hey, I see Christ in you in the way that you picked up your toys on time, the way that you were obedient. But it doesn't mean that they're regenerate. It doesn't mean that they're born again, but you can still see the work of God in and through people. Uh, Romans 2.14, Romans 2.14 kind of points to this, where it says, the Gentiles, those are those who are not Jews, they're not saved, they don't have the law. By nature, they do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. So uh, Paul's saying there, you know, the Gentiles, some of them will even do God's law. They'll do the right thing, even though they don't have the law because they've been created in the image of God, right? And God works through all people. God does things in all people. It doesn't mean that they're regenerate or born again, but we can see God's fingerprints in all people. One author called that the echoes of Christ the echoes of Christ. And he said, even with the unregenerate, we should affirm the echoes of Christ in others. And so we're called to point out specific successes. We need to be doing this for our husbands. We need to be doing this for our kids. And when I say kids, I, I realize that when your kids are young, you're just doing a lot of discipline and correction. Uh, but as they get older, as they transition into elementary school and junior high school and high school and college ages, we should have more affirmation and less criticism and correction. We should just drift and, and switch that pattern. Uh, we should be pointing out the successes in our extended family, in-laws, uh, aunts and uncles, our friends, our church community here, we should definitely be pointing to our spiritual successes and just in the community in general. And if we do that, we're gonna have a lot of people that we can be affirming of. You might be thinking, yeah, but if I affirm my high school kid or if I affirm my husband or if I affirm my friend, it's gonna go to their head. I mean, they're gonna think that they've really arrived when I know that they haven't. Uh, well, you know what? Affirm anyways, right? Uh, Romans 13, seven says, pay to all what's owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. I mean, if someone, if God has done a work in somebody and it's worthy of pointing to God's work on, it's the right thing to do. It's what we ought to do. We ought to say, I see God's work in you. 
And if this is something kind of foreign to you or you don't even know how to begin doing it, I would just suggest that you put it on your calendar. Like you can say on your calendar every Friday, I need to make an affirming statement to my husband and just point out, you know, something that I see God doing in his life. Or every Saturday morning, I'm gonna affirm my friend. Every Saturday morning, I'm gonna point to something that I see God doing in her life. Or every Monday, I'll do child one, and every Wednesday, child two, and every Friday, child three. But calendaring it so that you know, we can say, okay, I'm gonna remember to do this. And as we do that, and we start doing it, and we keep doing it, we do it always, as Paul said, we start to become known for it. We start to become known as someone who is an affirmer. And you know, if you're known for something, it means that it's public information, right? And we see that in the text. If you look back at 2 Thessalonians 1.4, that's exactly what Paul said. He said, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. They boasted, he boasted. It's a, another neat word that Paul uses here by adding an N as a prefix to this boasting. It's like, we super boast about you. I, I love Paul's just really colorful words. Uh, he let them know, I get it, you guys are hanging on despite some really tough circumstances. And so we super boast about you in the churches of God reminding them that they're on the right path. It says in the end of verse four there, in the afflictions that you are enduring. Not that you have endured or not that you will endure, but you are enduring right now because those difficulties were still with them. And Paul affirms them in front of their peers, the churches of God. So that's our final point here is praise others publicly. We need to do this publicly. He says there in the text in verse four, 2 Thessalonians 1, 4, therefore we ourselves. He's saying, you know, we're not just hearing about uh, the great things that God is doing in you. We're not just getting reports about the great things that God is doing in you. But we ourselves, we are speaking good things. We are affirming God's work in you to others. We ourselves are saying these things. We all know that, you know, gossip is wrong. And we call gossip sometimes talking behind someone's back. Don't talk behind their back, that's wrong. But that's assuming that the talk is negative, right? What if we flipped that around? What if we became masters at the opposite, at talking behind people's backs, but in the positive, affirming them behind people's backs? That's exactly what Paul was doing here. I mean, he was super boasting about them to other people. And so we all need to affirm people directly, and we need to affirm them in public as well. And when we get that combination of direct affirmation coupled with this public confirmation, it's like affirmation squared. I mean, not just affirmation plus affirmation, but affirmation times affirmation. And it makes a big difference. It, it causes there to be a big you know, change or power or dynamic that takes place, this combination of direct and public affirmation. I mean, I jotted down five things that uh, this direct and public affirmation can do, the uh, impact that it can make. Uh, the first is, is that the person who's affirmed, uh, they're given hope, right? First Thessalonians 5.1, we saw this last time, where Paul said, encourage one another and build one another up. Uh, when you're affirmed, when someone says, I see God's work in you, it brings you hope. God has worked in me, and God will continue to work in me. I'm sure you felt discouraged before, and someone said to you, you know what, I see what God has done in and through you, and it just brings you hope. It also, the second thing is it spurs you on towards holiness. Uh, the affirmed is spurred on towards greater holiness. Uh, we see this back in 1 Thessalonians 4.1. 
First Thessalonians 4.1 where Paul said, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And we saw that throughout that letter, that first letter to the Thessalonians, that emphasis on you're doing good, do more and more. Do more and more because when someone's affirmed, when the work that God is doing is recognized in them or stated directly and publicly, it spurs you on to do more, doesn't it? When someone says, I see, I see what God's doing in you, I see the good that God's doing in you, I see the difference that God's making in you, it motivates you. You wanna do more. You wanna be more and more holy. And the other thing is, the third thing is that the watching world, when we do this directly and publicly, the watching world, they're just enticed. Uh, they're wooed in. I mean, think about what Jesus said in John 13, 35. I know you know this verse. John 13, 35, this is what Jesus said. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What was it that he said? By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another, love. That love for one another, it's gotta be public in order for all people to know that you have love for one another. Jesus is saying that the watching world, they have the right to judge whether you're a disciple or not, whether you're actually a Christian or not, by the way that you love one another. That's amazing, isn't it? So this has gotta be public. We've gotta be praising one another publicly. And as we began talking about social media, I mean, that's a great opportunity. Can you imagine if you uh, just became more affirming of people in social media? Social media is so filled with negativity, right? All the terrible things about politics and all the terrible things that happened. What if you used it as an opportunity just to be more affirming? of your husband and your friends and your children and your sisters here at Christ. Uh, the world would watch with their jaw dropped, right? As they see all of that, they would think, wow, these people are different. There's something unique about them. And again, it's enticing. It's intriguing. They would want to peek into that even more because of that love that we display for one another. Uh, another one is, the fourth one is, is that you know, if you become an affirmer, people just want you around. It's just the way that it works. Uh, I know there's times for me that I think to myself, I hope Cherie Clark's here. <laughs> I mean, she is an expert at affirmation, right? If you're on social media, you're probably friends with Cherie Clark and she is affirming everybody. I mean, continually, relentlessly. And it just can be uh, hope generating and stimulate you to more holiness. It's a good thing. It just feels great. It encourages, it drives you on and you want those people around. In 2 Corinthians 7, 5, and 6, 2 Corinthians is such an interesting book because Paul was so wiped out and discouraged and very transparent about that. Uh, in the beginning, he says that we despaired even of life. Like we're just over this. We, you know, it's just difficult and rough and hard. And then he's having to make a defense for his apostleship to the church at Corinth there as they have false teachers coming in. And he's just weary. Second Corinthians 7, 5, and 6, he says, even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn fighting without and fear within. Paul just saying, hey, on the outside we were fighting, on the inside we were fearful. Like we were worn down. And he says, you know what? But God, who comforts the downcast, God brought us comfort. Even in that God brought us comfort, he comforted us by the coming of Titus. That's the way that God decided to comfort them, was by bringing Titus. 
And you know that Titus was full of affirmation. Paul, look at what God's done through you. Look what God's done in you. Look how he's changed you. Look how he's taken you as a persecutor of the church and made you a champion for Christ. I mean, that comforted Paul so much so that you know Paul's saying he wants Titus around. He wants Titus to be there as an affirmer. And then finally, the last one is that, you know, if you become an affirmer, you as the affirmer, you're just pleasing to God. And we saw that in our text, right? In 2 Thessalonians 1.3, we ought to give thanks to you because it's right. This is the right thing to do. This is what God wants us to do. So in the end, everybody benefits, right? The ones being affirmed, the watching world is benefiting, and the one who does the affirming. And you might be thinking, well, are you saying that God needs me to affirm to get his work done? No, I'm not saying that. Uh, God can do whatever he wants to do without us, right? Uh, He can save people without our evangelism. He can make a difference without us praying. And yet he uses evangelism and he uses praying. Those are methods that he set up to do his work through. And in the same way, this is a method that he set up so that he might be able to do his work. So you gotta think to yourself, at the end of the day today, what would people say that I'm known for? Would they say that I'm known for being the one who's always fault-finding, criticizing, nitpicking, pointing out what's wrong, bringing that correction, When people see me coming, do they think, oh no, I'm gonna get corrected again? Or are we the one who's affirming? Do we affirm the work of God in other people? And if you think, I don't know, I don't know if I like the answer that I would give to that, then let's re-ask it. Let's make the choice right now to be obedient to this great charge in this text and say, I will choose to become a more affirming person. If we make the change, we can say, not at the end of the day, but at the end of my life, what will I be known for? What will I be primarily known for? Not that I won't have to bring correction and criticism, of course we will, but what am I primarily known for? Am I known for someone who's, as someone who's fault-finding and criticizing and nitpicking, or am I known as somebody who is continually, specifically, and even publicly, continually, specifically, and publicly, pointing to what God is doing in and through other people? If so, it's, it's guaranteed to fill people with hope and to spur them on to holiness. So let's God, ask God to help us all to become experts in biblical affirmation. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to explore this text with my friends. God, we thank you for just this great encouragement that's here. Uh, in this opening statement to the church at Thessalonica, God seeing how Paul says that we ought to, we owe it to, we have a debt to, we're obligated to do this because it's right. We need to point to your work in other people. God help us to look for and to see specific things that we can point to and God help us even to do it publicly. God, we pray that you would help each and every one of us to become experts in biblical affirmation. God, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We thank you, God, for the forgiveness that he extends to us. We thank you that his mercies are new every single morning. And even as we fail at this, we have another opportunity to do it right. And God, not only do we have an opportunity to do it right, but we know, God, that we have the opportunity to one day hear from our Jesus, our master, well done, good and faithful servant. God, please help us to be that person. We love you, Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen. You guys are dismissed to your groups.